All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Breakwater Mega Church. God bless you. Those who are able to be a part of our viewing audience, maybe Sonny, Doug, Meg. We've got a lot of people out there who are paying attention to this. So I got some reports from Africa. Thank God for WhatsApp, right? Amen. Remember back in the 1900s when all phones were connected to the wall with a cord and you actually had to dial this little thing? <clears throat> so this is from Stanley George who is the president of uh, Foursquare Malawi. He says, hello, Pastor. I hope this message finds you well. I want to report what's happened with the Lolongwe church support. So we've been helping fuel that fire over there, which they're very entrepreneurial, and we really love to help them as much as we possibly can. Lolongwe is the capital city of Malawi, <clears throat> and they're working to establish a church there. He says, so far the leadership has found and purchased land. The people who are working on the ground are pastor, a uh, bunch of names here, uh, Fexton, some of you might know, and Amos. Amos is a good buddy of ours. A couple of other people we wouldn't know, but uh, three of those are from the Blantyre Foursquare Church who are now living and working in Lilongwe. So he says, on behalf of the National Church, I want to thank Breakwater Megachurch, for your amazing support. The church in Longway is overwhelmed by your support. It's like a dream come true. So here we are, dream makers, right? Yeah. Why not? We can dream and we can do it. If you dream, you got to wake up, make it happen, All right? So <clears> he <throat> says the team is on the ground uh, to see that the church in Longway is firm, firmly established. And uh, the report also, because a couple of churches were destroyed in that huge rain, so we were helping them with that. They're going to start doing that as soon as the, the rains subside over there. And they're going to build a temporary church in the long way, which we're happy about. And Stanley says, I have a vision for the church of reaching all three regions and the influential areas. So he says, I'm thankful for the Breakwater Mega Church and as our partners, because we are partners, are we not? Yes. God is using you so much in his kingdom. Our next move is the northern region, Mazuza. We've never been to the northern section. We've been about halfway, which is a long way. It's kind of long country like California is. So Mazuza would be like Sacramento and up, you know, northern California. So he says, I'm focusing on developing leaders. Continue to stand with us in prayers. More love and blessings to you. Praise God for that. What do you say? Now, concerning an uh, update on our water project, uh, let's see. There is a huge need right here. Here it is. If I can blow it up. Let me see if I got glasses. So there's a severe uh, typhoid outbreak in a district. Uh, five deaths, 51 people. And the chief there says their water is contaminated with salmonella. The public uh, health officer says that the whole region of 293 households is at risk being infected by the disease. And they have called for urgent intervention. So Edwin's sent this to us. And most of you are familiar. Edwin's our guy on the ground. We love him. known him for 20 years. And I said, well, what do you got in mind? Let's, let's help, right? 
I said, isn't there any government officials or anybody doing anything to help them? Don't, don't they have other agencies over there? Uh, he goes, no, no one's doing anything. Uh, he says he called the water officer. He's going to go visit on, on Monday, which is tomorrow. And I said, yeah, go do it. Uh, we want to help, right? Can you imagine? Uh, end sickness and disease and poverty and misery that comes from waterborne diseases. So we're grateful for that. So we got that coming up. Be, be praying for that, that that will be successful. We have 20 schools that we want to help open right now. So we're, we feel really fortunate. We got the church in Luangwe. We got the project in the, the school in Blantyre, which little Sophie from Canada and her mom are redesigning this giant shipping container and turning it into a high-tech classroom. We're going to have eight, 20 computers, desks, lights, solar panels, batteries, internet, and they're just getting ready to ship it. So they're getting the manifest of all the uh, import goods for the Malawi uh, revenue. So we needed to get there safely. It's got to go from Vancouver to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Mozambique, Mozambique to Blantyre, which is a long way. And we need it protected, and we need it shielded, and we need everything to get there. We need no hassles. So a lot of good things happening right now, a lot of stuff going on that we need to come before the Lord and pray about. And also to uh, keep <clears throat> building, right? I will build my, my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. This is a great new year. We have great plans to do all some kinds of things. Uh, this is going to be the best year ever, yeah. right? Yeah. Or, or we're going to make the best of this year ever. <laughs> best year ever and make the best. All right, so let's pray, shall we, for this offering right now. If you want to give to Africa Outreach, there's a little slot in the envelope. You just put it on there. 100% goes to that. Uh, we want to keep the nations expanding the gospel to our friends. We're so hard at work. Father, we just thank you so much for you and your son Jesus, the ultimate missionary who left heaven to come to earth and to evangelize here and to bring us good news, who died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that we could be set free from the power and the penalty of sin. And so, Lord, we meet here today as your ambassadors, Lord. You've invested us with this great responsibility, Lord building the kingdom and we're thankful for our partners here and abroad we pray lord you'd bless this offering today that would accomplish much for the kingdom in jesus name everybody say amen amen good morning breakwater flows there is a fountain that drowns our rose there is an ocean deeper than fear the tide is rising rising there is a current stirring deep inside it's overflowing from the heart of god the flood of heaven crashing over us the tide is
still on the throne, right? Did he ever quit? No. (laughs) If he did, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? We are attempting to work our way through Matthew's gospel, and so far we're in the genealogy. All right? I had a text from somebody who said, where where did Matthew get that genealogy? Which was an interesting question. So if we'll get that up, we'll get rolling. Uh, Matthew 1, 1, Matthew chapter 1 begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And of course, it's interesting, we're going to look at the women in the genealogy of Jesus. It should say women and the genealogy of Jesus. However, uh, we looked at this, uh, yes, uh, last week, and we found out the genealogies are very important to the Jewish people. As you read through the Old Testament, I'm sure as most of you have, you'll come up upon lots of long and very boring lists of genealogies. <sighs> However, the genealogy of King David would be of primary importance because the Messiah comes from King David, so you would think that they would have a, a genealogy that pertains to him. And so Ma- uh, Matthew records that for us. Where did Matthew get this genealogy? So... In looking deeply into this, or deeper than I have before, most of what we find in Matthew chapter 1 comes from the Old Testament. 
So the genealogy used by Matthew in the genealogies has already been written down in the Old Testament. Now, there's a certain part of it that comes from local research. So this is just a uh, quick outline of where you can find certain genealogies and as they pertain to the uh, verses as we come down uh, to Jesus. And when you finally get down to verse 13 and 16, there's a bunch of names that aren't mentioned in Scripture, but they're common names. So most likely, Matthew's got to do some research, right? So how important are these genealogies? And so I want to take a moment to think about them for a lot of reasons, which we'll build upon and it'll all come out in the big puzzle uh, pieces later on. So I found this in the <clears throat> book of Ruth. Check it out. So on Ruth 4, 18 and 22, there's a genealogy that goes from Perez, who is the son of uh, Tamar, and all the way down to David. And you can see in Matthew's gospel the similarities. You seeing that? You got Perez, you got Hezron, you got Ram, you got Aminadab, Nashon. It's almost identical. The things that Matthew adds in verse 5, you can see that Rahab is the mother of Boaz and Ruth is the mother of Obed. Okay? So in this genealogy, wherever he gets it, he's added some of the ladies to that list. Does anybody find that interesting? Hmm? Thanks. It's a lot of hard work right there. <laughs> so the word genealogy appears uh, in the Old Testament at least 20 times. It means to enroll by pedigree or by lineage, to reckon genealogically, to be enrolled, to be reckoned according to your race or family. And as we said, there's lots of genealogies in the Old Testament. We're going to look at some of them and see how meticulous they were about their record keeping. And hopefully someday you'll be really blessed by that. Okay? So the first nine chapters of the uh, book of First Chronicles are all genealogies. Uh, Genesis chapter 36, the genealogy of Esau. I mean, why would you want that, right? Uh, Genesis 35, 23, 27 is Jacob's sons. Of course, we probably want Jacob's sons. Now, in 1 Chronicles 6, there's 80 verses on the sons of Levi. Amazing, isn't it? And then, uh, chapter 7, they got 40 verses on the genealogies of Issachar, Benjamin, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Asher. Check this out. You're going to love this, okay? Look at here. Uh, 1 Chronicles 7 said, the Issachar. Uh, the descendants, they have a list of fighting men in their genealogy, 22,600. And the relatives who were fighting men that belonged to the clans of Iskar, 87,000. They're listed in the genealogy. So there's a genealogy somewhere that somebody wrote down that has 87,000 names on it of just men. Fighting men. Okay? How big is that scroll? That's like the phone book. Do you remember phone books? 
Everyone used to have phones and phone books. <laughs> phone books used to come on the front porch. Remember, they're big, huge things. Can you imagine who wrote that down? Where did they get the paper and the pen for that? And they have it. That's a lot of people, wouldn't you say? Incredible. Who kept that list? Where was it kept? So someone had to be trained in writing. Someone had to be the record keeper for all that, keep tabs on all these people, and, and safeguard it somewhere so that they can have it. Here, we keep going on. The Sons of Benjamin, they've got 22,034 fighting men, okay? The genealogical record written down somewhere. They had it. Wait, wait a minute. 22,034. Are you sure there's not one more somewhere? I said they could have used someone like this to count ballots in Philadelphia. Trump would be president. This guy here is the son of somebody who's son of Benjamin. His, his genealogical record, he's got 20,200 fighting men. At least they round it up. That's good. But what I want you to see is the amount of records that they were able to keep, the amount of writing and, and uh, the ability that they had to keep track of all these situations. So this son of a son of a son, 17,200 fighting men. This one's kind of interesting about Manasseh because this guy, Azriel, whatever his name is, he's a descendant of Manasseh through his Armenian concubine. And concubines were like second-level wives, okay? They didn't have all the protections of wives and things like that, but they served in a wifely function. She gave birth to this guy who was a father of that guy. He took a wife among them, and he's got a sister name. So it's not completely impossible that you'd see women mentioned in a genealogy. And often what I found is because men in those days could have multiple wives and they wanted to know who was the mother of these children. If you had, like, you know, who was the son of Leah, who was the son of Rachel, the son of Abigail, and things like that. So uh, women were sometimes included in the genealogies for specific reasons. There's another descendant. Uh, he only had daughters. Look at that. Poor guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this wife, his wife's got a name, gave birth to the son. And this guy had a daughter who built upper and lower Beth Haran. So she's, look at this guy, she's a builder. You know what an amazing lady that is, right? Asher. He's got, in his genealogy, 26,000 men. Uh, here's one that's kind of interesting for Corinthians, uh, uh, Corinthians, Chronicles 8, Benjamin. Uh, he's got sons, and <clears throat> sons were born to this guy in Moab. He divorced his wives, uh, wives. But he's got another wife he didn't divorce, and he's had some sons there. And so you can see that this wife needed to be named because she had the number of sons, and 
then he had children by one of the wives that he divorced. So this, this is Hollywood right here, doesn't it? Right? Multiple wives, multiple divorce, uh, multiple kids and multiple families. What's not modern about that? Hmm? <laughs> and all, then uh, they're just, so they have records of all the heads of the families, chiefs as listed in genealogy that lived in Jerusalem. So everybody that lived in Jerusalem at the time, heads of family, chiefs, all listed in genealogy. Somebody has it, somebody wrote it down, somebody copied it, kept it in a scroll, kept somewhere in Jerusalem. And uh, Benjamin's got 150 grandsons. How about that? Sons and grandsons, 150. Wow, that's a lot. I'm up to 15. <laughs> And then just to show you that all Israel is listening to the genealogies recorded in the book of Kings of Israel. So they were very meticulous about their record keeping and about their genealogies. But I just want you to show, show you that in the Old Testament period, even though we call it an oral period or there's not much that comes down to us from history because it's so long ago, that doesn't mean that things weren't written down and then people that kept documentation. This is just genealogies. This is not the other political and government stuff. That would be normal. It require normal documentation, records, and laws, and things like that. All right? So now they go into Babylon. The northern kingdom is, is uh, absorbed into Assyria in 722 B.C., 586 B.C. Most of you are aware that the southern kingdom was taken captive, Judah and Benjamin, to Babylon, the Babylonian exile. They're there for 70 years. And this is interesting to me. Maybe it is to you. Uh, they're taken captive to Babylon when? 586 B.C. Because of their unfaithfulness. You can read that in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, their horrible uh, sins and wickedness. God says, I'll evict you, right? Which he did. But he also gave them a promise to come back. So now they're coming back. They're resettling their, in their own property. Uh, there's Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants. And so they go through and they number all these people. Okay, they, the people from Judah are 690, Benjamin is 956, heads of families, priests, 1760. All right? Now, the interesting about this genealogy is uh, this one here in uh, 1 Chronicles 9.14. The Levites, who were the people who took care of the temple and all the accoutrements and stuff that belonged to the, the temple... There was 212 of them, and they are registered by genealogy in their villages. So how far does this genealogy go? It goes not only from larger cities, it's smaller cities. So even in small cities, they had genealogies that they kept, family records, which I think is pretty interesting because we're told that Matthew, that none of the apostles were able to write anything for 30 years. They couldn't write anything. We had to wait for Mark in 60 to write the first gospel. <laughs> poor apostles. And what do you say? Here's such a literary society and a culture that kept track of people in villages and people. So this is even after they came back from Babylon, where they've been in captivity for 70 years, somehow they maintain these, these records. Check it out. So if you claim that you were a priest or a part of the Levites, and they searched for your name in the genealogical record, you, weren't, you were disqualified. 
Why did they keep these records? Because you had to have a pure pedigree in order for you to serve as a priest or a Levite. Check it out. This is Ezra. Ezra is one of the ones, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, coming back from Babylon. So Nehemiah says, God gave me this great idea. I'm going to call everybody together, and we're going to get the ordinary citizens for registration. So here we're going to do this big registration, right? All the people, you're going to get the nobles, the leaders, along with ordinary citizens. So what is this? It's like a census, right? Let's get everybody out. What? Set up little tables, get little guys with pens and paper, and write everyone's name down, right? Is that possible? Apparently it is. So he found the genealogical record of those who had first returned to Judah. And so he goes through this long list. He, he has a list that goes on forever in Nehemiah 7, which I didn't want to put up here for you. <clears throat> but this is what was written. So he found a written document with all the names of everyone who came back to Israel from Babylon. And he lists them by number. 500 of this, 725, the family line. You can look it up yourself. The list of exiles who returned from captivity from King Nebuchadnezzar and returned to Jerusalem. Uh, a part of the reason they did this is they searched for their family records, but they couldn't find them, and so they're excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So this is one of the reasons they, they kept such meticulous records is because... They wanted to know who could actually serve as kings and priests. Let's see what else. I got one more. So, so the whole company, after this registration, 42,360. Can you imagine writing down 43,000 names? That sounds like penance in Catholic school, right? <laughs> Anybody ever do penance? I will not talk in class. Wow, that's why I have carpal tunnel today. <laughs> so, plus there's 7,337. Wait, 7,337. Now, check this out. This is crazy. 69,435 camels. Somebody counted... 69,000 camels. <laughs> how would I do this? One, two, three, four, five. You know, do they have one of those little things yet? The abacus? How do you keep track of that? And 6,720 donkeys. Who needs to know how many donkeys you have? <laughs> who was assigned to that? Right? Low man in the totem pole, you, count the donkeys. That would be horrible. So we somehow have got it in our heads that just because these were 1,000 and 2,000 years before Christ that no one wrote down anything because not, not much has survived from those, that period of time. But what you can see here from Scripture itself, which we have written down for us, that has survived, is all these other uh, ways that we can understand just how much documentation took place in those days. So that's first of all. First of all, 
Uh, no, wrong way. Let's go that way. So I'm really surprised at how many meticulous written records were kept by archivists. What do you say? This is amazing to me, at least to me. So I hope it is to you, even as captives. And then you want to see how meticulous they were. They're careful, painstaking records of genealogies and even animals, how important it was to the Hebrew people. And we want to begin to appreciate the amount of written documents recorded and kept securely. Just, just in genealogies, if nothing was written, how do we have so many written documents? All right? Uh, so now we get to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it makes more sense now why he would begin with this genealogy <clears throat> and how important it is to Jews to have a genealogy and also to link him back to uh, Abraham and to, to David, all right? So I'm hoping that we have a deep appreciation for this. So as we look through this, as uh, Matthew gives us, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the big three. Jacob had 12 sons. Judah is one of those. And Judah is the father of these two boys, whose mother is Tamar, all right? So far, so good. So we got a mother listed here, Solomon, the father of Boaz. His mother was Rahab, Boaz, father of Obed, Obed. Uh, the mother was Ruth. Uh, Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. Jesus' mother is Mary. So we have in the genealogy of Christ five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Now, we might think, no big deal, right? However, women were rarely listed in ancient genealogies. And even as we make major advances, uh, advances in archaeology and they're finding so many more uh, records which help us understand the ancient Near East and their social ordering and their... Uh, religious activities. One, one thing is clear. There's very few records that contain the activities of women. Even with all the new discoveries, there's very little information on the everyday life of women. So it's unusual and extraordinary in any list or ancestry to find women mentioned. Women had no legal rights. Women were the property of their fathers and then their husbands. The Jews prayed every morning that they thank God that they weren't born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. You think about the genealogy of Jesus, how condensed it is. Okay, 16 verses. You go from Genesis to Jesus. Six, that's 2,000 years. That's like the entire Old Testament summed up in this genealogy. Considering how compact it is and how much space that... Uh, Matthew needs, it's amazing that this amount of women, five women, are in this genealogy. Five women in this extraordinary pedigree. Now, if there was no woman mentioned, would you care? No, no one would care. Four of these women don't need to be recorded in the genealogy. Mary, of course, is necessary, wouldn't you say? We need her. But the other four women could have easily been ignored or routinely forgotten. 
No other mothers are listed by Matthew. Why these four? Now check this out. You ready for this? <clears throat> they got 14 generations, three sections of 14 generations. That's at least 40 mothers, the possibilities of 40 mothers that he could choose from. Uh, he could have selected from a large list of women as his choice of mothers. He could have chosen some better women, more prominent, more significant. He didn't need to include any women, did he? So it's puzzling to try and figure out why women anyway and why these particular women were included in the genealogy. So the commentary struggled to find some meaning. That would warrant the unwarranted inclusion of these ladies. So I got tons of commentaries. I got them on the internet. There's so much information to wade through. And it's kind of interesting to hear from people to figure out why these women are included in this prestigious pedigree. Now, one possible reason is because it's history. <laughs> that is, in fact, happened. If you were trying to fake a genealogy, you would leave certain people out of that genealogy, especially if you're trying to promote Jesus coming from some sinless generation. Are you with me? But the reality is that's not it. These are real people <laughs> with real problems who do real sins, who are a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that we know dirty little details about people who lived over 2,000, 3,000 years ago? And we were talking, talking with Bob about this, and it's like when, when you read through some of the Old Testament and you get sorted details about the lives of some of our key characters, uh, you, you, know, you realize that these are just regular people. <laughs> They're... They're like people who live down the street or, you know, over the, in, in our neighborhood, right? They're just, they do the same things in terms of human behavior. The full gamut is in the genealogy of Christ. It's amazing. People are not much different today than they were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Same problem. I mean, they had weird marriage customs, right? <laughs> Some other stuff. Strange things ring through them. Why'd they do that? That sounds crazy. <clears throat> to us, anyway. So why not choose Sarah or Rebecca, Leah or Rachel? Why omit these prominent Jewish women? So he could have written the genealogy like He could have done this, OK? He could have said, Abraham's the father of Isaac, and say, and, and his mother was Sarah. He could have said, Jacob, father, Isaac's the father of Jacob, mother's Rebecca. He could have mentioned Leah. He could have left out Tamar, right? He could have left out Rahab and Ruth, written it just like this. He definitely could have left out Bathsheba, all right? Are you kidding me? Whew. And again, why include women at all? It's unnecessary to name women. Yet he made a choice. He made a choice, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to include these five specific women. 
Now, three of them were Gentiles. Tamar was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Bathsheba, originally the wife of a Gentile. Uriah was a Hittite. Now, upon review, it seems like Matthew went out of his way and listed the worst women in Jewish history. Okay? Except for Ruth, shining star, our hero, beacon of light. Thank God at least there's one decent person in his genealogy of murderers and rapists. The genealogy of Jesus is far from pure and holy. There's liars, there's thieves, there's deceivers, there's murder, there's incest, there's adultery, there's prostitution. This is not a good genealogy. And that's only the stuff we know about. So God has always planned missions to all people, including his own earthly family. All right? So the genealogy of Jesus is far from pure and holy. The descent from Abraham to David to Jesus is more about the fulfillment of prophecy than about maintaining a pure bloodline of saintly characters. Are you with me? No one has a sinless pedigree. What do you say? Think about it. Your genealogy looks like that genealogy. Oh, they all do. Why? People are all the same forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. Well, you got no murders in your genealogy? You got no rapists, no thieves? I, I come from a long line of Vikings. I could imagine the worst people among my ancestors. Are you with me? Just think about what Vikings did. You know? So, let's just take a look at one of these ladies today. Uh, the first one, Tamar, Tamar. Now, this story is one of the most disgusting Old Testament stories, all right, if you ever read it. I usually skip over it when reading the Bible to my kids growing up. There are certain Old Testament stories I, I just never read, okay, and this is one of them. Now, in fact, this is really interesting. I'm sure you'll appreciate this. Josephus leaves it out of his Antiquity of the Jews. So I brought my Josephus with me today. Here he is. Josephus was a Pharisee. He was a general in the Jewish army in Galilee uh, just after the time of Christ. He was there for the huge war against uh, Rome. And he wrote the Wars of the Jews, okay? Here's Wars of the Jews. Here, this much. Check this out. He wrote all of this about the history of the prolonged war against the Jews. Look at that. So awesome. Oh, there's more. Wait, there's more. Wait, there's more. Think about handwriting this on papyrus. Okay? Could he do that? And he did it within five years of the war because he says, I want everybody to know the truth of what happened to Jerusalem. So he wrote it in his own native tongue, which is Aramaic, and he had translated into Greek and Latin. Could, could, could he do that? One guy do all of that? Oh, no. Apostles couldn't write one gospel. <laughs> they, they couldn't write it. It was so hard. Oh, 
We couldn't find our pen. <laughs> no, that's, 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 your, that's your scholarly argument. That's one of them. It's just ridiculous. You've got to be kidding me. And he wrote Antiquities within 20 years, which is the entire summary of the Old Testament. So the first part of this, the Antiquities, look at this, from creation all the way. Look at it. He wrote this by hand and then had it translated into Greek for the Greek-speaking Jews and for the Greek-speaking world. Can you imagine? And somebody had to copy this and guard it and keep it so we still have it today. That's fantastic. Now, so I tried to find the story of Tamar in here. He leaves it out completely. I don't blame him, right? <laughs> and that's how bad it is. So he made a choice to do that. So <clears throat> Judah had three sons. The first son he was given to Tamar. And uh, he was killed. God killed him for some sin. So Judah gave her to the brother who had this, this law that uh, this, uh, the next son needed to step up to his widows, uh, to the widow of his older brother and marry her. So Onan was supposed to marry Tamar and to produce an heir for the brother. So now the second son's thinking, my older brother died, all the inheritance come to me, right? So now if I raise up a son to my brother, all the inheritance goes to that kid. So he's going, I don't, I don't like that idea. So God killed him. I'm not going to explain to you how or why. Go read it for yourself. It's disgusting. I would have killed him too. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So they died suddenly and, and uh, in turn after being married to Tamar. So what is Tamar, a bad luck or something? <laughs> she like the poisonous wife or something. So now there's only one son left to Judah. You know, the holy line has to come through Judah, right? So he's got to protect little uh, uh, Shelah. So he promised that he would give his third son to her. Go back to your parents until Shayla is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid that Shayla would die like his brother. So Tamar doesn't know that. She's, she's on her way back home thinking, okay, I'll wait my time and and uh, we'll see what happens. All right? So, uh, let's see. Where am I here? Right here. I'm looking at my teleprompter. There it is. Okay, so here's how it works in ancient uh, legal tradition. It's required that the next available son and brother be given to Tamar as a husband to produce offspring. So Judah is following custom by giving the second son to Tamar, okay? But he doesn't want to do it again. So he's actually taking the law into his own hands in his head and going, I'm not going to do this, right? Because I'm worried about my third son. So according to the law, it's called leveret marriage. We see it even in the New Testament, and we'll see it even in, in Ruth's situation when we get there. Uh, his the third son should have married uh, Tamar. They're and their first child would have been regarded as belonging to the first son. And it was a requirement. It was a law. It's the way they set things up. But she went home, and she was relegated to a life of a widow. Now, marriages were arranged by fathers in those days. 
and marriage was expected to be done early between 12 and 18, which is to say that the two sons, Ur and Onan, were most likely young teenagers, and Tamar was probably 12 or 13 at the time. The third son, Shelah, was most likely not much younger than Tamar. So they're not like 45-year-old people. You're looking at teenagers right here. Tamar waited patiently. Shelah had grown up to marriageable age. It was obvious that Judah was not going to allow that marriage. It became clear that he's not going to follow the law. And in the meantime, he became a widower some years. I don't know how much that is. His wife died. Now, this is where he gets in trouble. He's going with his friend to supervise the shearing of a sheep. Now, this whole sheep shearing is a festival. Shepherds get together. It's a big deal, okay? Big party. Morning's over. We're going to get together, shepherds. Nothing good could come of that. Someone told Tamar, look, your, father, your father-in-law is going up to shear his sheep. So she decides that she's going to take matters into her own hands and use deception to see what she can do about getting a child, getting Judah to give her a child. So Sheila grew up. There's no arrangements made for her to come marry him. So she says, okay, I'll get on my widow's clothes, cover myself up. I'll go up to the road, I'll sit at the village, and along comes Br'er Rabbit and (laughs) noticed her and thought she was a prostitute. But she's not actually a prostitute, right? So look how easy this happened for him. So he stopped and propositioned her. Hey, let me have sex with you. He said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. And, of course, it's a business. How much will you pay me? I'll give you a goat. Goat's expensive, even today, right? Be great. <laughs> Who wouldn't want a goat? <laughs> Goat's expensive in Malawi, right? So then she, then he goes, okay, I'll give you a goat. He goes, well, what are you going to give me a guarantee? You know, I've, you know, come on. Talk is cheap, right? I got a little negotiating going on here. Uh, What kind of guarantee do you want? And so let me, she said, let me have your identification seal. It's cord, your walking stick, all the the emblems of his royal position, his leadership position in the community. Easily recognizable stuff that he wore about him. So he gave them to her. Yeah, very important stuff that he had. And she became pregnant. Lo and behold, nature happened, right? Unbelievable how often that happens when recreation turns into procreation. Huh? So she went home, put on her widow's clothes as usual, and now his buddy's with him, right? 
And there she is. And he goes, hey, hold on a minute. Just wait a minute. I'm going to take care. Can you imagine how embarrassed his friend is to be with him? Then he has to send his friend back with the goat and find her and get it to him. He's too embarrassed to do it himself, right? So now he's got his little buddy that's simple. What do you say? What do you call it? Implicating. Implicating, yeah. So he leaves this, goes back home. So Judas tells his friend who'd been with him to take the goat back, pick it up, and get it. And so he can't find her, of course. Where's the shrine prostitute? Where's the, the temple prostitute who was sitting here? And they go, we don't have one like that. <laughs> We'd like to have one here, but we, we don't have it. What are you talking about? We don't have a shrine prostitute. So then he goes back, says, I can't find her. They never had a shrine prostitute. He goes, well, that's a bummer. Let her keep the things I gave her. I mean, I tried to give her the goat. I mean, that's what we agreed on, right? I'm trying to be an honest guy here, right? Law-abiding citizen. We'll be the laughing stock of the village. Definitely would be. So Judah took her for one of the women who were dedicated prostitutes in the Canaanite worship of idols, okay? So the Canaanite culture had cult prostitution as a way of promoting fertility. So you had prostitutes who were dedicated to the goddess Ishtar who would reside or stay near the shrines or temples. They'd be veiled, of course, as a symbol of the bride of Baal. And men would visit the shrine, use the services of the cult prostitutes prior to planting their fields or during other important seasons such as shearing sheep or lambing. In this way, they honored the gods and reenacted the divine marriage in an attempt to ensure fertility and prosperity for their fields and herds. IVP, Bible Background Commentary, Old Testament. So not only is she just a prostitute, but she's a, a prostitute in the service of idols and idolatry and the Canaanite religion. What do you say? The lion of the tribe. Huh? Three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law is acting like a prostitute. She's now pregnant. What? <laughs> How could she do such a horrible thing as that? Bring her out, we'll burn her. Huh? He's furious. This is sin. And I hate sin, especially in other people. <laughs> so they did it. They're, they're going to go get her, right? And they're, they're bringing her out to kill her. And they sent the message to the father-in-law, which means he's not actually there for the burning. Maybe he doesn't actually want to watch his daughter-in-law burnt to a crisp. But as the head of the family and the head of this area, he had the authority to make that happen just by his own will, by his own hand. And his decision was upheld by the community. They're all in arms about this. <sighs> Which is stoning was usual, burning is above and beyond the call of duty. 
So he's really going out of his way here, okay, to, to make this happen. And it was more harsh than the law required, whether according to their custom or even uh, later on in the uh, law of Moses. So what is he doing? In passing judgment on her, what is he doing? Passing judgment on himself, right? So they're, they're taking her out. They're going to kill her. Uh, and then she goes, hey, look at these. Whose seal and cord, whose walking sticks are these? And they all go, oh, yeah. Oh, those would be mine. Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I. That's not very hard to do, right? Since his moral standard was so low. Well, she's a little more righteous than I am. But the rush to judgment was swift and extreme. And this evidence now, talk about the laughingstock community, how embarrassing is this? After all the rage, you're organizing all these people and getting everybody to take your, your daughter-in-law to, to, uh, to burn her up. Uh, this, this would be horribly embarrassing. Now, in the law, it says if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both of them should be put to death, right? This is like the story of the, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 where they're brought to Jesus. She was caught in the act of adultery. Should we stone her? And like, well, where's the guy that she was caught with? Oh, he skates? You know, there's always a double standard, right? Those who control the law usually use it in their own favor. And uh, this particular case, it was only enforced against the one rather than the both. Can't have that happen. And this is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Which is to say, uh, he's not protected from sin, is he? Now, if the ancestral line went through the thir third son, we might not even hear about this, but the ancestral line actually comes through one of the children that Tamar had. So she gave birth to twins. One of them was Perez. Perez is in the line, as we saw in Matthew chapter 1, as one of the relatives of King David. So it just so happens in the providence of God, the amazing uh, understanding who, how God works, right? You think this surprised God? He didn't know about this? God is going to use the choices that we make and wrap them into his big plan, okay? He's never fooled by anything that we manage to do. So this sordid story has very little to commend. Such dirty laundry. And the commentaries work hard to find some redeeming qualities. And to me, there aren't many bright sides to this whole account. I mean, did Judah do anything that was right? I mean, Tamar, a little less, right? She's got a little bit more uh, than he did. Did Tamar do wrong things? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to squeeze any sugar out of this. And the Bible doesn't sure, what I like is the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the bad behavior of its main characters, which helps me understand that it's true, right? It's reality, it's history. Because you wouldn't do this if you were making it up. <clears throat> and we can learn as much from a bad example as we, come from a, as we can from a, a good example, right? I'm always a good example. I'm a good example of a good example or a good example of a bad example. Always a good example. 
Now, the Bible's full of good people doing bad things. What do you say? Yeah, God is sovereign. God incorporates our choices, whether good or bad, into his big plan. If God can only work with perfection, nothing would get done. <laughs> and that would be the end of all of us. Okay? The inclusion of Tamar instructs us that even in the worst situation, God is able to make his plan work for redemption for humanity anyway. How big is God? Much bigger than this, right? If God was confined to the decisions of humans, God would not be God or sovereign. Are you with me? Because God has foreknowledge and because God understands our foibles, it gives us hope, right? It gives us hope, I mean, for me anyway, as we blunder our way through life, God has grace and mercy and a purpose for us that's bigger than our failures. Hallelujah. Oh, I thought I had another one there. So Jesus is descended from Abraham, and you look at the list of people in there. There's, not, there's some good ones, yeah, but generally so you got liars, deceivers, murderers, adultery, prostitutes. You, like I say, you got all kinds of stuff in there, right? But these, this is humans, and Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Just because you're Jew doesn't mean you're impervious to sin. It means you're just like anybody else. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need the redemption, the good news in Jesus Christ. Now, check it out. There's some books that you want your name in. If they're doing this on an earthly level, how meticulous are the books that God keeps? Huh? In uh, Revelation 20, it says, I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. You think God can keep good books? Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Nothing impure will ever enter heaven, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Lamb's book of life. How do you get in the Lamb's book of life? Is it important that your name is listed? In the Lamb's Book, when the registry comes, will your name be listed in the Lamb's Book? How many of you want to be in the Lamb's Book of Life? I want to be there. RSVP. <laughs> right? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. With the heart you believe, with the mouth you confess that Jesus is Lord, that God has raised him from the dead. God has made it a gift. God has made it available to anybody who calls upon him. There's no money exchange. There's nothing good that you can possibly do to get your name on the list of God's book of life. You want to be a part of that genealogy of faith in Abraham. You want to be a spiritual member of the family of God. To as many as received him, he gave power to become children of God. Hallelujah.
If you're listening to me today, you made it this far and you haven't ever asked Jesus into your heart and life, you haven't asked God to forgive your sins, you haven't said, Lord, write my name on your book, I want a, a reservation, I want my name called when I get there, you can do that today, you can do it now. It's simply a matter of asking, asking. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much that in your mercy and grace, you guard us and protect us. You shield us. We pray, Lord, that we would grow up into Christ and become better representatives of you every day. We pray for this year, Lord, that we would do great and mighty things, that we could lay at your foot, feet, that we could add to the book of the works that are done in, in, on your behalf. And, Lord, we just ask again and again for this season that we are in, that you would guard and protect us in every way, that we can continue to arise and shine and declare you in our generation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Everybody say, amen. All right. Stand if you can. Let's worship the Messiah. The son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. 
keep this hallelujah going, shall we?
can praise hallelujah to you, Lord. Thank you, God, that uh, people did keep records, Lord, that they didn't whitewash what happened, God, but that even through the, the terrible sins that people made, Lord, the things that happened that were wrong, that those things, Lord, were recorded to show that the, your word is real, Lord, and also that they're recorded to show the history of our Savior Jesus, Lord. Thank you so much for that history, God. Thank you for all the people who recorded the genealogies, recorded the history of what happened, Lord. Thank you that we have confidence that those things are, are true, Lord. They're not just something, a story made up, Lord, but that they are true, Lord. And Thank you, God, that you also show us, even in the worst decisions that we make, Lord, you're forgiving, that you can redeem us, Lord, and you can bring about good of all, all those terrible things that happen, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. God bless you. God bless you. Yeah. Thank you, Kurt.